Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 195, Dr. Randall Rouser on What's So Confusing About Grace? Dr. Randall Rouser is a systematic and analytic theologian. He also writes books in apologetics and is particularly known for his in-person and written dialogues with atheists. His Ph.D. in theology is from King's College, London, and since 2003 he has been professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton in Alberta, Canada. You may know him from the internet where he blogs and podcasts as The Tentative Apologist. You can find those and more information about him at randallrouser.com. The author of many popular and scholarly articles and book chapters, his books include What on Earth Do We Know About Heaven? God or Godless, co-authored with atheist John Loftus, The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver, and Other Apologetics Rabbit Trails, You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Is the Atheist My Neighbor, and An Atheist and a Christian Walk Into a Bar, which sounds like a joke, but it's actually a book title too. But he's here today to discuss his latest book with us called What's So Confusing About Grace. Dr. Rouser, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Great to be with you, Dale. Dr. Rouser, this is a very personal and vulnerable book. You share quite a few embarrassing stories about yourself here. And this is kind of unusual for a philosophical theologian. I thought it was quite hilarious in spots. Why did you write such a personal book? Why not just sally forth as an expounder of profound abstractions? Beautifully stated. One thing I've learned over the years is you really gain in your credibility with other people when you are vulnerable. There's no better way to win over an audience than to share something that's maybe a little bit self-deprecating, something that doesn't present you in maybe the best possible light. And one other thing I've found is that story, much of this book is something of my own story, something of a memoir, that story has a power both to encapsulate universal principles, universal struggles, but because it's concrete, it also resonates with people in a way that more abstract, propositional, formal discussions don't necessarily do. So I found this was a great way to get into some deep and heady theological waters while being vulnerable and telling my own story along the way. I enjoyed reading it as well. The format's unusual. It's it's a kind of a normal length paperback, I would say, but it's divided into 40 chapters, which come into 10 sections. It's small bites, uh, but the writing's very good. And I, I think you're right about the effectiveness of this kind of communication. I mean, I have burned into my memory uh, this image of little Randall throwing a cookie into a ravine, which I won't say what that's about. Yeah. <laughs> but it's making an important <laughs> point. And there's a miracle story in here. I'll leave that as a, as a surprise, too. I'm just a couple years older than you. And I mean, to say there's a few self-deprecating moments here doesn't begin to communicate what's in this book. I mean, you could have called it, I was an evangelical teenage knucklehead or (laughs) because there's so so many kind of off ideas. I can bust on you that way because they're almost every single one of them. Like I remembered, like Jesus Mm -hmm. is coming back in 1988. All rock music is of the devil. Etc. Etc. 
It's true. I mean, that's and and that's exactly what I wanted to do. Have something stick in a person's mind, something that they can identify with. I have had people say that, hey, if you grew up in the 70s or 80s in evangelical or fundamentalist Christianity, you're going to resonate with aspects of the story here. And so hopefully, you know, it, it is finding it is landing with people in that way. Yeah, yeah, that's most definitely true. I mean, in some ways, it's a story of a journey from pop evangelical religion into a more biblically grounded faith. Is that partly how you look at it? Oh, yeah, I certainly was hoping you'd say that. So, yes, when I grew up, I came with a dispensational framework. I had a grew up in a charismatic tradition, but we also had a strong fundamentalist taint. So there was a lot of suspicion of the wider culture. And I grew up with a whole interpretation of Christianity, of reading the Bible that I didn't realize, you know, that it was so historically located. Here, let me give you one example of that vulnerability you're referring to. I never heard of the Apostles' Creed until I went to a Christian university and I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, but I wouldn't even say that the church began at Azusa Street in 1906. I would say for all I knew, the church had begun when I was born. There was no sense of tradition reaching back of creeds and confessions and a bigger picture that you would identify with. There was just your little community and ultimately yourself standing before God. Yeah, of course, the evangelical narrative about oneself is that it's all just Bible-based and we don't even have any tradition. We jump over tradition and uh, just get everything straight out of the Bible. But then, yeah, it turns out to not be that simple. It turns out that we, we've got tons of traditions including the Bible church tradition you just referred to, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think you actually make this comparison somewhere in the book. There's a bit of a Woody Allen-ish kind of neurotic side to your spiritual life. <laughs> uh, as an evangelical kid, you go from one confusing and frightening idea to another. Can you tell us about what you call the fifth spiritual law? Yeah, well, let me start off. Uh, I do actually refer to Woody Allen in at least one place, and it's not surprising. His films have had a big impact on me. Now, his neuroses, of course, comes from early in his life. He sort of realized that there was nothing after death, and he's had this existential struggle with existence ever since then. Right. Um, so so his comes from a sort of non-theist or, or post-theist or secular perspective, secular Jewish perspective. Yeah. Now, for, for me, it's certainly different. It comes from fear of hellfire. Mm. And the context of this fifth spiritual law you referred to, it builds out of the four spiritual laws. And I think most of us, if we grew up evangelical, we grew up hearing about the four spiritual laws of Bill Bright and Campus Crusade, where we are separated from God and He's offered Christ to, to be the bridge for us. What I discovered is that tacitly, uh, implicitly, as I was getting older, those four spiritual laws weren't enough, that I sensed there was more that I had to do. And so one of them was the fifth spiritual law. This is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I never articulated it as such when I was a kid, but it was clearly there. And it was this overwhelming fear that if you are ashamed of Jesus, then he will be ashamed of you. Uh, which is, of course, he says, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when the Father comes with his glory and his angels. So I was left with this overwhelming fear that if I exhibited, if I demonstrated in my Christian witness any fear, if I was ever ashamed of the gospel, if I ever blushed when someone asked me about Jesus, 
or if I failed to share him when I had an opportunity to do so, that come judgment day, I would have nixed my own salvation and he would be blushing in front of the father before uh, when, when I was called before the father and I would be sent off to the gallows for eternity. Yeah, I, I remember that same terror myself. It's pretty rough when you're uh, this teenage kid in this awkward stage and you realize that you don't fit in, partly by virtue of being an evangelical Christian. And uh, now you got this too. That's a pretty serious threat. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, it's a lot to carry. Yeah. But the way that you dealt with it was funny too, with the um, Christian rock jacket and the... Uh, <laughs> The t-shirt that was uh, covered, but not quite yeah. covered. Covered enough where you wouldn't be embarrassed about the JCDC t-shirt, but <laughs> uncovered enough where at least potentially it would be, it would be proclaiming your, your faith as a Christian. Yeah, I mean, talk about um, engaging in pharisaical behavior in, in that negative sense where you're trying to find a loophole into the kingdom. And so... I thought I could wear, on the one hand, I had to wear a Living Epistles t-shirt because that's just what true disciples did. They proclaimed <laughs> their faith uh, on a kind of cheesy t-shirt that was alluding to some popular secular rock band or, or, or you know, you had the one, uh, this blood's for you instead of this bud's for you. And yeah, you could wear that yeah, around. Yeah, it said Wiser instead of Budweiser. Yeah, exactly. In that same font. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just brutal, but, but the. <laughs> This assumption that I have to do this, and if I don't, then Jesus will be ashamed of me. And yet, gosh, I don't want to completely obliterate my chance for any social advancement in high school. And so I would cover up the parts of the T-shirt when I wore it that revealed that it was not actually ACDC. And so I could go through the day wearing JCDC, but everybody thinks I'm wearing ACDC. <laughs> bizarre sense of self-deception here. Yeah, that's what makes it so funny because, I mean, I think we've all played these kind of games with ourselves. There's a general theme in your stories about being a Christian kid that a lot of your obsessions back then would reflect what you would now consider to be legalism. What do you think legalism is and how do we avoid both legalism and just, you know, letting ourselves run wild? What's the word for the opposite of legalism? Antinomianism. Anti yeah, right. That's a nice $3 word. Antinomianism. Yeah. There's a real tension there. I mean, I think sort of a general definition of legalism is the, a point where the law becomes an end in itself, where rules become an end in themselves, and you simply follow the rules for the sake of. Jesus, of course, challenges legalism all the time. So when his disciples are cracking grain on the Sabbath, and they are challenged for working on the Sabbath, and he says, look, the Sabbath was created for man. Man, human beings were not created for the Sabbath. It's not an end in and of itself, but it has some greater purpose. That's the challenge of legalism. And on the other hand, antinomianism is to sense I'm completely free of the law. There are no restrictions on my behavior. I can just do whatever I want. And I think classically, the Christian life is lived out in the tension between these two. I remember Philip Yancey, he appeals to the contrast between Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy and Fyodor Dostoevsky. And so on the one hand, Tolstoy tried to follow every law and be as rigorous as he could in living out his Christian faith. And Dostoevsky was constantly falling back in a sin and throwing himself back at the mercy of God. And he was this big, visible sinner. And for so many of us, the Christian life is lived out between the tension of those two extremes, that 
we want to, to follow the law, but we also find ourselves falling back on grace and, and mercy when we fail to follow the law. Yeah, I like what you said. I think it's it's about taking a rule as an end in itself rather than just a means that might be useful for some purpose. Another hallmark of legalism to me is it's more likely to be legalism if you're making rules for other people. Like if you make rules for yourself, like who cares, you know? Maybe I don't think I should listen to secular music or maybe I don't think I should drink beer or something, but it's usually legalism when you're like, now, guess what? Nobody can do those two things. Of course, without any scriptural or otherwise warrant for the rule, right? It's just arbitrary. Yeah, I think that what you say is a good heuristic for identifying legalism. I mean, of course, you could be legalistic in a way that you apply it to yourself. I think Tolstoy was. But yeah. I also think you're right to say that day to day, we are more likely to be legalists about other people than we are about ourselves. We're more likely to be pretty gracious to ourselves. I, I know that when I drive in traffic, right? I mean, I'm giving myself all sorts of wiggle room to exceed the speed limit and cut people off when I just say, well, I have to merge. But when other people do those sorts of things, I'm laying down the law. Yeah. And if one's being legalistic about oneself, then, you know, whenever you keep all these rules that you've set, then you're really proud of it, right? Now, now you're a smug, holier than thou person. That's the way you tell if you're being legalistic about yourself, I think. I had a conversation with a pastor just the other day and he says to me that that he preached a really hard-hitting sermon on the ultimacy of love based upon Galatians chapter 5. And then he would say, but he, he would get the response from the congregants, yes, pastor, but. And after the but comes some particular sin that this person is concerned with. And inevitably, it's a sin that somebody else is doing, right? It's not a sin that that, other, that, that individual is doing. So they're worried, you know, like the older son in the prodigal, prodigal son parable, they're worried about that grace being extended to this person. They're not so worried about extending grace to themselves. Yeah, because why would I need that? I'm so good. <laughs> when the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Rouser and I discuss what he calls protest atheism. Dr. Rouser, what is this idea that you call in the book protest atheism, and why has that position sometimes seemed attractive to you? Protest atheism is a view that says, even if God exists, I will refuse to submit to God. It's been popular in, in, in the new atheist movement. You'll find people talking about the evils in the world and so on and say, even if God does exist, I wouldn't submit to him. In fact, I'll give you a concrete example. I uh, remember just about 23 years ago, I was at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, and I saw a debate between William Lane Craig and Henry Morgenthaler. Now, Henry Morgenthaler is a famous Canadian atheist who survived the Holocaust and became a medical doctor who helped get abortion laws lifted in Canada. And so he was defending atheism. So, I mean, he wasn't the best. He wasn't a, an academic philosopher, but he was making his case. 
And in the Q&A, a young student asked a question of Mr. Morgenthaler, Dr. Morgenthaler, and, and the student said, look, Dr. Morgenthaler, if it could be shown to you that God exists, would you bow to him? And Dr. Morgenthaler responded quite bluntly, I would not bow to God. And I was like, whoa, you know, that's, that's incredible. Uh, but of course, what I also have to keep in mind is the fact that Morgenthaler, when he says that, he says it as someone who survived the concentration camp and who saw what he once believed was God completely inactive. And so now he's answering that question by saying, look, even if God does exist, the God that exists is the God who, in my opinion, was inactive when he should have been active during the Holocaust, and I will not submit to that God. Now, of course, the analytic philosopher could could come in and say, yeah, but if by God we're talking about a perfect being, perfectly good, wise being, then even if God does not act or does not seem to be acting when he should be, we should recognize our own cognitive limitations, right, and and still submit to him. So some people believe that that protest atheism is a deeply irrational position once we've defined that God really is this maximally perfect being. Be that as it may, there there certainly are people that take that position. Well, I wrestled with that and, and I have throughout my life wrestled with it, but I do recount one occasion back in the mid-1990s where I opened a newspaper and it was uh, just a nice summer evening and I just wanted to read some articles kill some time. So the crickets are chirping. I'm on the side of the highway because we were on a road trip. And I read a story about a father in New Mexico who pulls over to the side of the road and pulls out a knife and beheads his older son on the side of the road. And some of the early reports said that he believed God had told him to do this. And that moment, I sensed the visceral power of protest atheism, that even if God existed, I sensed in that moment, I didn't want to submit to him. The most famous example of this comes from Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, when Ivan, the atheist, says he doesn't want there to be a reason that would justify God's inaction in that moment. He would rather there be no God than that God be justified for not acting. And I sensed the, a visceral connection with Ivan in that moment, that I would rather there were no God than that there be a God who would stand by and let a father behead his own son. The conclusion is, however, I did ultimately come to the position that I would rather there be a God who had that morally sufficient reason not to have prevented that heinous act than that there be no God at all. And when I drew that conclusion, I said, you know, I just can't stay with protest atheism. Nonetheless, I did in that moment experience in a very personal way the intuitive appeal of a protest atheist position. So it's more than a theoretical atheism, like, oh, I just don't find adequate evidence, or I think, you know, abstractly the problem of evil can't be overcome. It's sort of a visceral moral condemnation, I guess, for... God's inaction if he were there <laughs> is that it's something deeper than a, than a theoretical judgment. It's um, it's a reaction yeah. to the, to, to some really horrible evil, but drawing a conclusion about how could anyone justifiably allow this? 
Yeah, exactly. So while I still certainly don't agree with Henry Morgenthaler's response to that questioner, uh, I can understand where he's coming from. You know, to say just maybe a little bit more about it, I sometimes think a way to understand protest atheism from that intellectual side is to say that if there were some reason why God stood by and didn't intervene in a case of horrible, horrendous evil, that that reason could never outweigh the horror of inaction. And so you would ultimately have a worse situation if there were a God than if there weren't, because you'd have the the beheading itself and you'd also have God's ultimately unjustifiable inaction. It seems to me that that, that kind of reasoning is what's going on and maybe maybe I'm overthinking it. It would multiply the evils because then the Father yeah. would be an, would do an evil action and God would do an evil action just by standing by. Yeah, yeah, you could say it's it's the evil of commission from the actor, the, the the father, and it's the act of omission from God the Father. That's perhaps one way to analyze it. It strikes me though that it has to go beyond reason. Like it's it's more than a um, theoretical problem because you would think that if there were a perfect being, then he'd have to have some good reason to allow it. But oftentimes, a pro- protest atheist is saying. Yeah, and even if there were a God, which of course entails that there would be a good reason for allowing it, then I, I still wouldn't want there to be a God. I'd be like, you know, I'd give God the finger or something. That seems like the non-rational part. It's like, I remember some famous atheist said that uh, if he got to the afterlife and he found that God was existed, he would kill himself, like, again. Hmm. <laughs> uh, just because he didn't want reality to be like that. It just... I think a lot of theists haven't got that far, haven't generated that much sympathy for atheism based on evil. Like they haven't been exactly that position like you're describing. I would think of it kind of like a police officer. You know, when you're training for the force, one of the things you have to go through is you have to get, if you're going to use mace, you have to get sprayed in the face with mace at least once to know from an experiential perspective what it's like. And while I wouldn't necessarily say people, you you need to try to cultivate some kind of crisis of faith, I will say that getting sprayed in the face with the problem of evil and sensing it in that visceral sense can create a lot more sympathy with the people you're interacting with. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Rouser asks if we've been reading a Disney-fied Bible. Dr. Rousey, you say in the book that a lot of Christians are reading a Disney-fied Bible. What did you mean by that? So the illusion comes from my experience some years ago of, of first reading the Brothers Grimm and their versions of some of these familiar stories, in particular Cinderella. Because I, like most people, grew up with Cinderella in terms of the 1950 Disney movie. And when I read the Brothers Grimm version, it was definitely grim. I mean, to give you just some quick examples, like the two stepsisters, in order to try to fit their feet into the glass slipper, one of them hacks off her big toe. 
with a big butcher knife. Another one saws off her heel. And each time the prince notices that the shoe doesn't actually fit because blood is, is squirting out of the shoe. So the grim versions of these familiar fairy tales have all sorts of violence and moral offense to them. And I never realized that this is the way these stories were originally told when I grew up the Disney version. And what I think happens when it comes to the Bible is we often grow up with a Disney version of the Bible. And this, of course, gets into a big question. How do you introduce children to narratives, many of which are really consisting of adult content? Things such as there's a lot of sex. There's the man sleeping with his father's concubines on the roof of a palace, for example. Yep. There are things like genocide. There are beheadings. Uh, there's the piles of heads of, of princes being put in this one big grisly pile. There's just a lot of violence. There's a woman being raped repeatedly and then dying and then her body being cut up and mailed across the land. Mm-hmm. So all of these things, when young children are introduced to the Bible, they're typically introduced to it through these sort of retellings of it, which are much like the Disney retelling. And once we actually start reading the Bible itself, many of us have learned the Bible through these early stories. And so we engage in a sort of selective reading that skims over the difficult parts, the bloody parts. Now, maybe the, you know, the 12-year-old boy who's kind of fascinated with the violence, is, it's a revelation for him to discover some of this. But I'll tell you, for me, when, when I was growing up, it was actually a shock getting into my late te- teens and early 20s to discover a lot of the violence that I've been skipping for years. So I think one of the challenges is for us to get over the Disneyfied Bible that we never often grow out of and really confront some of the messier and more difficult parts of the Bible. Yeah, you brought up a couple of very difficult sorts of passages for Christians like us who believe in the inspiration of Scripture. And I kind of understood your general strategy is that everything is God-inspired, and that means it has to be useful in some way. Obviously, it doesn't mean we do everything we see portrayed there, because that would be crazy, right? No no sensible reader would conclude that everybody in there is an example. But even, you know, things the characters say, like, say, in Job, they're not said to be taught to us. You know, you have to read them in context and see what's really going on. And so then there's got to be some useful function for any part of Scripture, even the darkest, nastiest, most R-rated parts. I appreciated what you said about notorious psalm, you know, blessed is the one who smashes your baby's heads against the rocks. And your point was, uh, if I could paraphrase and interrupt me if, I, if I'm inaccurate here, it's not that we're necessarily supposed to pray that. It's not, it's not even being held forth as something that's necessarily good to pray. But what it is, is an example of a person pouring out really raw emotion to God And, you know, sometimes when a person is really horribly wronged and you give an example from a contemporary court case, then there's just this rage that comes out of that from that injury. And here it is in the psalm book, this person is praying out of that terrible place. Is that accurate? So that, and that's kind of the lesson for us. That's the good that we can find in it, that we should not be afraid to bring these kinds of prayers to God. Yeah. I mean, let me just give one qualification in terms of use. So, of course, uh, this idea of of a focus on Scripture's usefulness comes from the definition, Timothy, of all Scripture 
is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So my tradition growing up evangelical, all the focus was on Scripture conveying inerrant information. And it's interesting to note that when Paul talks about the authority of Scripture here, it's not about conveying inerrant propositional information. Rather, the primary focus is on the transformation of the reader through the reading of the text. Now, the one thing I would just qualify is that it doesn't necessarily follow that every particular verse or paragraph or section, whatever, what pericope is going to be obviously useful for every person, mm-hmm. but rather that there is an organic unity to the whole as a, as a literary text and God's brought all of it together. And as we read it in community, it can just speak to us in all sorts of ways. And yes, so for this, these cursing Psalms, such as Psalm 137, rather than try to baptize these as morally exemplary models of the occasions on which we would curse our enemies, I think we should just understand them to be real, honest, genuine records of the human experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that the Psalms bring together the totality of human experience. I mean, the Psalms also, among other things, they have all sorts of expressions of doubt and uncertainty. And I think you'd be very mistaken to think that that suggests we should cultivate doubt and uncertainty in our life. Rather, what it says is on the occasions when you doubt, here's someone who has doubted as well. And you can identify with this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I didn't understand, Dr. Rouser, quite what the thrust of your argument was when it came to the, uh, the biblical commands to slaughter all the Canaanites, which, as you correctly point out, would be what we now call in our new new lingo, uh, genocide. And, you know, normally we'd call it a war crime as well if one army went in and wiped out all the men, women, children, animals in a town. I wasn't exactly sure quite, you said to read it, read scripture in light of Christ and things like this, but I, if an atheist said, look, do you think that God really commanded that or not? Because if you say he did, then I say your God is bad. And if you say he didn't, then I say, aha, your scripture isn't as wonderful as you think it is. Like, what's your answer to that sort of atheistic biblical challenge? Well, let me just first say that that one of the common responses historically in the church has been to appeal to some deeper spiritual meaning, such as allegory. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it was very common in the medieval period to, to look at something like the occupation of Canaan and spiritualize it and see, well, this is really, the Canaanites represent sinful impulses. Now, it's interesting as well to note that C.S. Lewis explores that same kind of reading in Psalm 137 when it comes to smash the baby's brains in his mm-hmm. meditations on the Psalms. Lewis kind of famously suggests that we think about the baby, the ba- the, the Babylonian baby there is representing a sinful impulse. Yeah. And what you should do, he says, is smash the little bastard's brains in. I mean, that's what he says. Mm-hmm. The problem of allegorizing, let's say, one thirty Psalm 137, is, well, you can do that about anything then. So, for example, imagine a text that describes a lurid rape, and you say, well, the way I'm going to appropriate that now is by saying the woman raped is a sinful impulse, and so to rape her is to dominate and subjugate the sinful impulses of the flesh. Well... I guess you can try to do that, but is that really the most wise way to approach that text? It seems to kind of leave unaddressed the deeper moral issues. 
And so I think often the, the allegorical approach to spiritualizing texts like the genocide described in Joshua 6 have that same problem. Uh, let me just say a couple things then about that, about well, what would I put in its place? First thing I'm going to say is I'm going to appeal to something John Wesley famously said when he responded to Calvinism. And um, I'm not I'm not necessarily saying this to Calvinism, but I just want to borrow the principle. He says, essentially, even if I don't know how to interpret a text that appears to support Calvinism, it can't mean that. And I would say it's legitimate for a Christian who has reflected carefully on the nature of genocide and what that entails to say, well, I don't know exactly how to interpret Joshua 6 or Deuteronomy 20 or Deuteronomy 7 or one of these other passages for Samuel 15 about the Amalekites. Maybe I don't know how to interpret those, but I know it can't mean that. It can't mean that the God revealed in Jesus Christ really did command people to slaughter infants and the elderly, etc. Beyond that, one other thing I would say is it gets into the fundamental question of whether we are dealing here with history. So, for example, Douglas Earle, in his book, The Joshua Delusion, I believe it's called The Joshua Delusion, he talks about this, this fact that Joshua and the Deuteronomic history, and much of this, of the occupation of Canaan, is not considered to be historical in its narration by ancient biblical scholars, Now, which is not what I am. So I'm just deferring to what their opinion is. And if that's true, if it's not conveying at some points, events that happened as they are narrated in the text, then it is a good question for us to ask, well, then how is the text functioning? So there, there are many uh, different approaches that have been explored. Maybe I'll just drop one more response quickly from Christopher Wright. In his book, The God I Don't Understand, he explores an approach to these difficult texts of, of holy war or of, of Yahweh war from the perspective of accommodation. Now, the idea of accommodation is that God meets people in their limited understanding so as to bring them to a deeper understanding. And Wrights accepts the broad historicity of the narratives, but then suggests it could be that God met people in their understanding of war in the ancient Near East because the Israelites were doing what everyone else was doing. And he allowed them to think about himself and his relationship to them in the context of this kind of absolute total war with the intent of ultimately bringing them beyond that understanding, accommodating to their understanding, but bringing them beyond it. So I, I'm not going to pretend that I find that to be a totally intellectually satisfying response. I will just note that the church has always explored a range of responses to these violent texts. And so we should never place, I think, on the shoulders of a Christian an obligation that you have to accept one view in order to be a Christian in good standing. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Dr. Rouser and I discuss creeds, the Trinity, and exactly what must one believe to be saved. Dr. Rouser, 
Toward the beginning of this interview, you mentioned the fact that you were not brought up with creeds and you were going to evangelical churches that are like most evangelical churches, maybe with the exception of Reformed and Episcopal and Anglican. A lot of evangelical churches are very non-creedal, you know, and some of them have a history of no creed but the Bible. And uh, now you're in a Baptist church, which is a similar heritage. You could call it a low church kind of thing. Chapter 26 was interesting. You talk about uh, Mother Church, it's a very Catholic-sounding phrase, and you talk about the creeds, and you say, well, maybe this has impoverished my Christian life, that I haven't had these creeds be a part of regular worship. And yet later on, when you discuss you know, exactly what has to be believed to be saved, you wonder, are these things all really essential? Do you see a tension there between the historic small C Catholic creeds, and then wondering maybe maybe all these things are not really essential? For me, I mean, the, the creeds are, I've been reciting creeds now for 20 years, maybe not regularly, but I did start in university and the churches I've tended to go to maybe once a month, they'll have a recitation of the Apostles' Creed. So I would say they're not in my blood in the same way they, they might be for somebody who grew up in the creeds. I think that they are you know, they're fallible, they're imperfect, but they're also valuable centering documents to work with. They are, they serve as helpful roadmaps. Um, If I'm going to climb a mountain, I'm going to start off by looking at the ways people commonly go up the mountain. I'm not going to strike out on my own. And I like to think of the creeds in those terms. So the creed can be a helpful way up the mountain, but it's not necessarily the only way up the mountain. I also thought the Trinity chapter was interesting. And since this is the Trinity's podcast, I'll ask you a little bit about it. I would describe it as kind of rattling the cage a little bit. You say, well, look, how come the Trinity isn't just sitting right there on the surface of the New Testament? You know, everybody says this is such an important and central doctrine. This is the Christian doctrine of God. This is the key to all theology and maybe even the key to social relationships and politics and everything. And as soon as somebody uh, comes along and says, well, I'm not sure I believe in this Trinity thing, well, now there's trouble, but then how come you don't just find it in the Bible? That's interesting. That's something that you don't usually have people pointing out. And you don't don't give a, a full exposition of how you think the Trinity should be understood, which is fair enough. That's, that's a big topic. My question is this, if I understand your view, your view is that obviously the Trinity isn't explicitly in the Bible, and you, you point this out very pointedly, which is interesting and kind of jarring. And, but if I understand your view, it's that it's not exactly implied by the Bible in the sense that you could logically deduce it from what's in the Bible, but rather that it's like the best explanation of what's in the Bible. So it's not strictly part of the content of the Bible. Is that accurate? Is that how you view the Trinity in relationship to the Bible? Yeah, I would like to to put it like this. I think a person who's a non-Trinitarian, that they could give a reasonable account as to why they're a non-Trinitarian. And they wouldn't necessarily be in a better, in a worse place than many Trinitarians as they read the Bible. So, So the idea, A, that the Trinity is in the Bible in some direct sense, or B, that the Trinity as an interpretation necessarily renders all other interpretations inferior, I, I'm not entirely persuaded that that either one of, I'm not persuaded that that second view is the case. 
and not least because I've I've listened to people like you who give a very reasonable and thorough and biblically informed challenge to what Trinitarians have historically believed or often what they've said they believed, which was sometimes a little bit confused. I mean, it does raise a very interesting question, but it's not just about the Trinity. There are so many doctrines that really the church had to take a lot of time to formulate them, to articulate them, doctrines about, well, even this question of what do you have to believe in order to be saved, which, of course, could very well include the Trinity and does, according to some accounts. Uh, When do you have to believe it if there's some essential set of beliefs you have to believe? And the thing is, there is no unanimity among Christians on some of these fundamental questions. And that is an interesting point that we should be reflecting on, is why are some of these things left so unclear in the biblical text if really we want to articulate the faith in such a way that these things are essential? Yeah, and it's part of the Protestant approach that in some sense Scripture should be sufficient to tell us what we need to know. But what I appreciate about your approach is I think it makes more sense than other Trinitarian views. Now, if it had been me writing the chapter, I would have gone on a big rant about evangelical apologists because they just present like a really simple rinky-dink little argument. They're like, see, the Trinity is just obviously implied. Like it could be deduced by a child from the Bible. And I don't think that's right because even the greatest theologians didn't do that for quite a while in Christian history, which is a fact that you acknowledge. There's another person, I think you might have mentioned him somewhere in the book, Stephen Holmes. He's a Baptist uh, British theologian and an expert on historical theology and on the Trinity. I interviewed him some time ago, and I don't recall that this came up, but and I, f- I forget why I think this, but I'm pretty sure this is his position as well, that No, it's not obviously implied there. And actually, it's not probably strictly implied there, but rather it's a theory that we bring to the text to help us better understand it. And so in that sense, it's rooted in it. What I'm trying to say is I think it's a sophisticated approach that is a lot harder to refute. The apologist is just Father's God, the Son's God, the Spirit's God. There's only one God. Boom, Trinity, right? Well, wait a second. (laughs) Yeah. Slow yeah. down. <laughs> That's, it's not even clear. We've argued for the Trinity yet, uh, but it's not clear what the argument is either. There's also interesting things like, you know, when you, if you move from the doctrine of the Trinity, or as you've raised from from your reference to Steve, uh, this idea of, of the doctrine as, as a, a theoretical account of some data, and you move to science and nature, well, scientific theories are always changing. And by the same token... If you look at, well, the ancient Hebrews certainly didn't have an understanding of the Trinity. I mean, you go back far enough, they weren't even monotheists. You had henotheists and monolaters. So then eventually they moved into monotheism. Eventually in the Christian era, you move into a period of Trinitarianism. And if scientific theories change over the time, is it possible that the Christian doctrine of God could slowly evolve over time into something different than what it is now? I mean, I used to have a simple answer to that. I would say Jude 3, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. But that doesn't necessarily end the conversation. As you continue to unpack and reflect on doctrine, things could in principle change. A theoretical account of what God is in a thousand years could be very different than what it is now. 
Yeah, and the essential belief question makes the whole thing kind of pressing because I think you point out that the Athanasian Creed says that you're you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in the Trinity. Most evangelicals will not say that. You know, I I remember Robert M. Bowman, the evangelical apologist. I, I heard him talk about this once, and you know, he recognizes that you can be a kid and you can be saved and really have very little idea about what this Trinity thing is about. It's essential to to being saved that you don't deny it at least if you're, I guess, fully informed. But anyway, you don't have to believe it. That's not strictly required. One question you raise in the book, which is maybe not easy to answer, is how could a belief be essential now if it wasn't essential like in the year 200? Yeah, and uh, if, you, if you look over the history of theology, you have a doctrine of incarnation is another example where you have this doctrine slowly evolving over time until you have this codification in the Chalcedonian definition in 451. And then, of course, theology has continued since then. And then in some cases, you've got a retrenchment back to an earlier position. So in the last 30 years, uh, now maybe this isn't a matter a matter of dogmatic essence, but you know it's notable that many theologians have been rejecting classical theism, and some of them in a very strong way, and espousing things such as the passibility of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them, like Jürgen Moltmann, even he seems to be rejecting monotheism. I mean, he says he's rejecting monotheism. So he seems to be Trinitarianism as a contrast to monotheism. So this stuff is very confusing because then you're like, okay, I just want to know, yeah, if there is an essence, what is it? What are the, the basics? And in one sense, that sounds crass, sort of say, yeah, just tell me the least that I need to know. But if we're talking about beliefs that are essential for being in right relationship with God, maybe not for a child, but maybe for somebody with an IQ of over 80, I'm not sure what God's expecting here. If there is some expectation, I'd love to know what it is, and I wish that the Bible had a little bit more clarity on it. This is left a little bit open, I think, in in the discussion in the book, because it's something that you're still thinking about, which is perfectly fair, of course. I mean, it's kind of a memoir of of uh, critical thinking and growing in in one's uh, theological understanding, guided by the Bible. I completely agreed, by the way, with part 10 about going to heaven versus the actual biblical promise, which is resurrection, which is so much more wonderful. I completely agreed. But about the essential beliefs, I mean, my own position, and this is contrary to mainstream tradition, is that we should go minimalist. Like Samuel Clark has an interesting discussion of this toward the beginning of his book, The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity. And in part, what he says is you can't make a contract with somebody and then after they sign the deal, change what the terms of the contract are. So the new covenant just is the new covenant. It wasn't uh, set by us and it, it, the terms of it can't be changing. I would just want to say, you know, whatever is preached in Acts, that pretty much shows us, right? You can't say something like you only have to believe what Jesus taught because still there was revelation that was yet to come at that time. Jesus was a law keeper, for instance, right? And But you and I are not. Most Christians are not, unless they're Jews also. But Acts, I mean, you have the fullness of divine revelation there. And, you know, they preach the gospel a whole bunch of times. So I would just say it's those kind of simple things. And you don't have to really have a developed theology. It could sort of be summarized up as that Jesus is the Christ. But that entails the narrative about, you know, sent by God, died as an atonement, raised and exalted. It's a way of summarizing that whole story. 
but like I said, that's against, that's against tradition to, to go that minimalist. I mean, I certainly see the, the appeal of it for sure. You know, if, if you, you take another view and you say, well, there is an essence, a minimal, you have to believe, but that changes over time. So to be a Christian at the time of Jesus, there's a different demand or expectation than there is in the second century or the fifth century or the 20th century. Wow. Uh, then I also want to ask, well, is there a different expectation with respect to your exposure to the gospel? I mean, if if you're a Jew living in Nazi Germany and your only encounter with the gospel before you die in the concentration camp, are Christians cursing you, what does that do to your culpability or the requirements of salvation? Mm. And what about what about if you're, um, to take a less extreme example, your only exposure to Christianity is a suburban prosperity gospel that has turned Christianity into getting rich and, and happy and healthy, and you reject that. So in one of my in one of my books, I, I tell a story which comes from uh, Bartolome Las Casas talking in the 16th century about the the execution in Hispaniola of these tribal leaders, their caciques, uh, and their tribal leaders, and they're being executed by the Franciscan monks. And one of them, he's told he has to to confess the Apostles' Creed before he's executed, and if he confesses it, he will go to heaven when he's executed. So then he asks the Franciscan. Wait, why are these monks executing people? What happened? This is part of the conquistadors uh, that that they want the gold for the people in Hispaniola and and Mesoamerica. So this is part of the genocides of the 16th century that Las Casas infamously recorded. Okay. So he's he's given an option. He's he says your option is this: you're going to be executed regardless. But you have a choice, either accept the Apostles' Creed or deny it. If you accept it, you go to heaven. If you deny it, you go to hell. He says, where are the conquistadors going? And the answer comes back, they're going to heaven. So he says, then I want to go to hell. And the obvious question is, did he really say, I mean, he said he wanted to go to hell. Did he really wish he wanted to have eternal separation from the ultimate source of all love and goodness? And I think that's an insane interpretation. Mm. So it raises this difficult question, at what point are people rejecting the gospel if they're rejecting some degree of distortion of the gospel? Yeah. Now, the main thread through this memoir is, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? And maybe what do people similar to me have to do to be saved? Uh, What exactly do we have to believe? I was wondering when I started to read the book, if you were going to get into, you know, what about those who never heard? Or what about those who heard a rotten version of the message and things like that? Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, what's confusing about Grace Volume 2, 20 more years yeah, uh, I have a feeling your your beliefs will continue to develop and uh, grow in, in certain directions, and so yeah, maybe you'll you'll be talking about those people in the next installment. Well, I've got a growing list of topics to follow up for next time around for sure. Doctor Rouser, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me, Dale. This week's thinking music has been. Her by Drake Stafford. As always, on the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can listen to or download the entire track. Thank you. 
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.